Scores and scores of books have been put out in the last decade purporting to tell us how to start, build, manage, and grow churches. And I suppose every once in a while I pick up one that's okay. But virtually all of them that are coming out don't even reference... Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of 1 Timothy, the first of three pastoral epistles, letters from the Apostle Paul to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. As we continue in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 today, we get an understanding for Paul's writing this letter. These epistles give instructions on how a church, a body of believers, is to conduct business, and how it's to conduct itself. And yet, as we find ourselves in the last days, we find much of what Paul wrote is not being observed in churches across America. So how are we to have an effective ministry in days like these? Well, that's the subject of today's study. So let's join Pastor Brogy now as we move to 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. You know, we're living in challenging days in which to serve Jesus Christ. We're living in a day that is covered over by false cults, religious fanaticism, false doctrine, theological liberalism, and theological pluralism. We're living in days when it appears like the devil is on the throne, as if he were reigning, and the things that once used to shock us and disgust us as a nation now seem to entertain us. But as Bible-believing Christians, we should be prepared to face this tidal wave of sin that has come upon this nation because God said it would come upon us. Jesus said it in the Olivet Discourse. He said, and at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. He also predicted, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So such times should come as no surprise to us because both Jesus and his apostles predicted they would come. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're not certain whether they're here, just open your eyes. It's everywhere. In one short generation... We as a nation, but not just as a nation, as a world, is fast turning from the basic morality of the scriptures to false beliefs, false behavior, immoral lifestyles that is covering over the peoples of this world. And we as Christians need to know how we should function in such days. Do we hold back? Do we fold up shop? Do we take off to the hills? Do we try to camouflage ourselves or build big defensive walls around our persons and families? No, God has called us to minister in the midst of Mayhem. And we who are to minister in these days of counterfeit Christianity need to know how that should happen. If you're using your note-taking outline there in the back of your bulletin, you can see that I want to share with you this morning three principles for effective ministry in the last days. Three principles so that a local church like ours can have an impact in this tidal wave of sin and apostasy that has come upon our county, our culture, and our country. Three principles. Number one, first, we must be awake to the church's conduct. We need to be awake today to the church's conduct. Right here in verses 14 and 15, Paul, among other things, spells out his motivation for writing this epistle. Notice, 
I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. He's writing us to instruct us about our behavior in the church of the living God. What are our duties as church members? Well, these verses are tremendously important as it relates to the doctrine of the church. You know, there's a lot of people today who think that the church is antiquated, that the church is just an institution that needs to be laid aside. My daughter was on a website this last week of an organization that she attended last summer and interacting with a number of high school students across the country and I with her. And it's amazing to me to see the way this generation of high school students are thinking that the church seemingly is to have or needs to have no place in their life. And I'm afraid that we're largely not alert today, but largely asleep when we need to be awake to what it is our conduct should be. Again, he says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that one ought to know how to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, Paul indicates that he's writing with authority. He's writing as an apostle, and he is aware of his God-given apostolic ministry. Timothy, if you remember, is in Ephesus. Paul's in Macedonia. And Paul plans to visit as soon as he can to personally investigate the situation in which Timothy finds himself. But in the providence of God, he's delayed. And thank God that he's delayed. Because he had he not been delayed, and you and I never would have had 1 Timothy. But what's important is that here's a man who is speaking in a way that he would have you to hear this morning. I mean, who else could write like this but an apostle? This I command to you. Elsewhere in the epistle, if anyone does not obey my instructions, take note of him. That's the language of an apostle. That's the language of a person who's speaking the very words of God. It's apostolic authority. I'm writing these things, these instructions to you. Why? So that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, the New Testament is the foundational deed. It's the ministry manual on how we as a church should behave, how we ought to conduct ourselves. Now, I think it's interesting to note that Paul typically will connect both doctrine and practice because he knows what a man believes ought to influence how he behaves. Now, typically in his epistles, when Paul speaks of doctrine, the application is in a very personal realm, how you personally should respond. But here in this epistle, he's focusing not so much on your personal life as much as he is on the church life. I am writing these things, these instructions to you, that is to you, Timothy, and to you, the church, so that you as a church might know how you ought to function. He said in chapter 3 that you as a pastor might know how to take care of the church of God. He's speaking about how we ought to conduct ourselves. That's been the theme of this epistle up to this point. If you remember in chapter 1, he told the church how they ought to deal with false teachers. In chapter 2, he told us how we ought to function when we worship together. In chapter 3, he told us how we ought to choose leaders, elders and deacons in the church. And in every instance, he brings home a doctrinal truth and then the appropriate application. For instance, in the second chapter, Paul went back to the doctrine of creation. He went back to the doctrine of the fall. In light of that, he told us how men and women ought to function. For instance, that women should not be pastors in a local church or elders or deacons for that matter. Why? Because they have a different calling from God. 
in light of this truth, here is how you ought to behave. Now, he's getting ready to do the same thing all over again. He's going to give us instruction about the doctrine of the church, and then he's going to show us how we ought to apply that doctrine. There's some things he wants us to hear this morning in verse 15, and I hope you have ears to hear because we would be very wise to hear it, especially in this day. Right behavior comes from right belief. Look, some of us do not have the godly marriages that God would have us to have for the simple reason that we don't have a right theology of marriage. Some of us are not raising the godly children that God would have us to raise because we don't have a proper biblical theology of parenting. Some of us do not have the financial freedom that God would have us to have because we don't have a right theology of money. And many churches are not the churches that God intends them to be because they do not have a right theology of the church. Right theology always influences right behavior. And so whether it's how God would have you conduct your personal life or the church at large, we need to think biblically. Again, verse 15, but in case I'm delayed, I write. Why? So that you may know how one ought to conduct himself. And notice the three phrases that follow. I have them underlined in my Bible, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. First, he calls the church the household of God. Second, he calls it the church of the living God. And finally, he calls it, notice, the pillar and support of the truth. And in each of these phrases, he emphasizes a different aspect of the church's doctrine that we in turn might behave accordingly. He wants to remind the elders, the deacons, and the church members of what a church is. And I want to tell you, if we are to be awake in these days of evil, we need to have a right doctrine of the church if we'll ever conduct ourselves in a way that would please God. Now notice first, he describes the church as the family of God. The church is the family of God. I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, this word household is the Greek word oikos. I know some of your older translations, if you're using them, renders it simply the house of God. And in one sense, that is not necessarily bad, though that's not what this verse is saying. It is true that the word oikos can be translated a house. And indeed, the church... The people of God are rightly described as God's house because this is where God lives. And under the old covenant, God had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. We are the temple of the living God. The Lord God dwells in his body known as the church. But in this context, the word oikos carries the idea of a family. He's already used it that way in three verses, in verses 5, verses uh, 4, and verse 12. For instance, back in verse 4, when he describes the qualifications of an elder, he says he must be one who manages his own household. The old King James says his house well. But again, contextually, it's obvious that he's speaking of a man's family. Likewise, in this verse, he's describing God's family, not simply as his house, but as his household. God's household, God's family. It's a beautiful description found in the New Testament. Now, Paul often loves to use the word brethren because when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you get a new family. 
You move from simply having a physical family to having a spiritual family, to having brothers and sisters in Christ. The newer translations really bring up to date this Greek word. He's not speaking simply of a building. Please understand, of course, never anywhere in the New Testament does the word house or church refer refer to brick or mortar. It's always referring to the people, the family of God. But it's a rich metaphor, and it's a warm metaphor that God has a family, and we understand that. I want to tell you, it will influence the way we treat one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And, of course, there are many other implications Because not only is the church an organization, it's a living organism. As a living organism, it needs to be fed. Fed on the Word of God, which is described as our milk, our meat, our honey, our bread. It's food. And Paul's going to point out in the next chapter that pastors must take the time to nourish themselves in the Word of God that they might in turn nourish others. Paul will echo this truth in Ephesians 4, that a church does not simply grow by addition, but by nourishment, by nutrition. And it's tragic many times to see a pastor wasting his time in all kinds of things, focusing on all the wrong things, so that when he stands behind this holy box on the Lord's day, he has nothing to offer his people. Look, when I come, I can come prepared to teach this book, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, because God doesn't want me to reveal my mind but his. And so if we are to be awake, if we are to know how we ought to behave, how we are to conduct ourselves, we must first understand we are the family of God. Second, we must also be awake to the fact that we are the assembly of God. He says, again, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the church of the living God. Now, the word church is the Greek word ekklesia. It literally means called out ones. It can also be translated, as it is in numerous cases, assemblies. Now, the term ecclesia, church assembly, is not always used to refer to believers, sometimes even unbelievers. As in Acts 19, there's a big assembly, a mob of people who was in mass confusion. Paul stood up. He uh, spoke of the one of the great seven wonders of the world and discounted it blew it out of the water, said Jesus is Lord. Sales of Artemis the Great crashed. All the city is in confusion. And there's that assembly of people. But the church, over a hundred times in the New Testament, translating this word ecclesia, is the assembly of those called out ones who are the church of the living God. Now, the phrase, the living God, is an Old Testament expression to again and again in opposition to those false, non-existent gods of the heathens. God reminds us that as recipients of the new covenant, he said, I will be their God, I will live among them, and they shall be my people. Now, the heathen temples of Paul's days were like museums. But the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, does not dwell in a temple made with human hands. The true one, the one true God, is involved in a living community of people called his church. He lives in and amongst us. He did that in the old covenant, and he especially does under the new covenant by his spirit. And I want to tell you, if you get a hold of this simple doctrinal truth, if you let that fact reverberate in your heart that we are the assembly of the living God. It will affect the way we are. One, when we're assembled, we'll be far more reverent and real in our worship. 
And when we realize that God is right here in our midst as a living temple, we'll be far more caring to one another. And when we realize that we are the church of the living God, we'll be far more bold in our witness because we represent the one true God. And if we really believe what the Bible says here, we as a congregation ought to be influenced in our behavior. The church, the assemblies of the living God, there's a local expression, and this is one. And we are called to realize that marvelous, marvelous truth. It's his church. He owns it. He bought it with the blood of Christ. And so Paul is writing Timothy how he ought to conduct himself in the church of the living God. Now I want to tell you these uh, pastoral epistles are really a handbook on how the church should behave. Scores and scores of books have been put out in the last decade purporting to tell us how to start, build, manage, and grow churches. And I suppose every once in a while I pick up one that's okay. But virtually all of them that are coming out don't even reference the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are how a church should grow God's way. And there's a lot of fake growth in our day. And it may be big and impressive. And it may grab your attention, but it's what man can do, not always what God can do. And it may look big and wood, hay, and stubble when it's all stacked up looks big. But a wise pastor, and anyone listening to me today as a wise church member, would do well to listen and saturate their minds with the truth of these pastoral epistles, lest we discover that all of our labor is nothing but wood, hay, and stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. We are to be awake as to how we are to conduct ourselves. If we are to be awake, we must understand right doctrine about the church. We are the family of God. We are the assembly of God. Third, the church is the pillar in support of the truth. Again in verse 15, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Note the pillar in support of the truth. Now we need to ask, in what sense is the church the pillar in support of the truth? The King James beautifully renders it the pillar in ground of the truth. The NIV puts it the pillar in foundation of the truth. The English Standard Version says, a pillar and buttress of truth. It's an architectural image that would have been very impressive to Timothy because Timothy is in Ephesus where the great temple of Diana is, built on a marble slab, a marble foundation. That was the ground upon which it was built with 127 pillars all the way around it. Now, a little lesson in architecture might be helpful here. It's interesting that the word here for ground, foundation, buttress, is the Greek word that typically refers to that part of the building that you cannot see. But whether you're referring to that part of the building that you cannot see or those great buttresses that you will see in Gothic cathedrals that hold up that whole foundation, the church is to be the support, the foundation, the buttress of truth. Now, on the one hand, the Bible affirms that Jesus is the foundation of the church. It's not built on a man. It's built on He, the Lord Jesus. He's the foundation, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, the truth Himself. But in addition, the local church is seen as the pillar and buttress for the truth. As a bulwark, it is to support the, the truth. It is to protect the truth so it doesn't fall. Isaiah the prophet uses the opposite imagery. 
He'll write in his prophecy, truth has fallen in the street so that justice is unable to enter in. They didn't hold up the truth, and so inequity entered in. So as a church, we are to be those who support the truth. But when you compromise the truth or turn away from the truth, you give the enemy a foothold in the door. And it's happened to scores of local churches because they did not heed this simple advice that Paul gives us. Now, when we come to the next chapter, Paul is going to instruct church leaders to take a militant stance against apostasy and sin, which may not make them popular, but it will certainly please the Lord. So on the one hand, we are the support, we are the ground, we are the buttress of the truth. But on the other hand, the church is a pillar. And the purpose of a pillar is to hold up the roof and the whole building aloft so that everyone can see it. So while on the one hand is the buttress of the truth, we are to hold the truth secure against false teachers so that it cannot be shaken against the false teachings of our day. On the other hand, the church is to hold the truth aloft. We are to hold it up that men can see it, that they can admire it, that they can believe in it. Paul uh, will write the church at Corinth, and he's comparing the church to a pillar, like a pedestal that lifts up a statue for all to see it. And he tells the church at Corinth that they are to be known and read by all men. Men are to see it in our lives, and they are to hear it in our talk. He will write the church at Philippi, and he will tell them to hold forth the word of, our, of life. And so the function of the church... Our duty is not only to stop the truth from being falsified, we are to hold it up so that men can see it. If we are to effectively minister in these last days, we do not need to hold our heads low. We do not need to hold back thinking that what we are teaching is odd or weird. And I will tell you, the more godless our culture becomes, the more weird and obscure and different we may be looked at, but we are to hold it up that men might see it and be converted. We are to be awake to the church's conduct. Secondly, not only is our, church, not only is our conduct predicated on right doctrine, the doctrine that we are the family of God, the assembly of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth, if we are to be effective in these last days, we must be attuned to the church's confession. Now, just what is this truth that we are to hold aloft? What is this truth that we are to keep from being falsified? Well, of course, it's the Bible, what is commonly referred to as the faith. But in this context, Paul gives a little summary, an early creed, as it were, of our common confession, what he calls here the mystery of godliness. He is saying here, in essence, in this verse, by unanimous vote, by common agreement, we Christians stand together on one grand message. And what he is about to articulate was an early creed that undoubtedly was sung, sung because of its rhythmic uh, rhythm that is seen here, not only in our English Bibles, but especially in the Greek New Testament. Look at verse 16. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the word mystery is the Greek word mysterion. We usually hear the word mystery and we think of something that's hidden from us. 
But really, the word that's used in the New Testament refers to something that was once hidden and now has been revealed or made known. And you can see it used that way numerous times, clearly of something that was once hidden and now revealed. And he refers here to the mystery of godliness. That is, to some essential truths that you need to get a grip on if you're ever going to live a godly life. They're essential truths of the faith. Now, look, there are some doctrines that Christians will split hairs over, but they're not doctrines that are essential to salvation or to godly living. But what he reveals here are doctrines that are essential to godly living and to being considered an orthodox, a true Christian. By no means is it a complete list, but it is certainly an essential list. It's our common confession. And Paul gives us, in essence, six truths in chronological order that are a picture of the triumphant career of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, he mentions that a part of our common confession is that Christ was revealed in the flesh. Now, a few manuscripts later on for clarification rendered it God was revealed in the flesh. And that is certainly true because Christ is God and He was revealed in the flesh. God did not simply come as a spirit. He came as God in human flesh. God wrapped flesh around His person. Jesus said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And the main truth that the church ought to bear witness to is that the Lord Jesus is God revealed in the flesh. We are to bear witness to His person and to His work. He is revealed in the flesh in His virgin birth, but also during His sinless life, seen in His substitutionary death, and ultimately in His victorious resurrection. But not only is He revealed in the flesh, we also learn that he was vindicated in the spirit. Was Christ God in the flesh? Yes, he was, as he was vindicated by the spirit. Now, you know, the word vindicated means endorsed. The Holy Spirit, as God the Father did, put the stamp of approval that Jesus Christ is no ordinary man, but that he is Lord. Though some of the Jewish people in his day rejected him, for he came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, and many received him because he was vindicated in the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit broke through the hardness of heart of that day. He authenticated the Lord Jesus as the second member of the Trinity. And how did he accomplish, accomplish that? Well, among other things, by the miracles that he did the sick that the Lord Jesus healed, the dead that He raised, the blind that He gave sight to, the deaf whose ears He unstopped, His dominion over the demonic realm. And on occasion, when we saw His flashes of, of, of omniscience and omnipotency, and ultimately, when by the Spirit of God, He raised Him from the dead. And it forced people to stop in their steps and say, you know, this is no ordinary human being. This is God in human flesh. And if you deny it, you are denying a basic affirmation of truth that is not only affirmed in the Scripture, it is affirmed in human history, for the resurrection is one of the best established facts of history. And if you deny that Jesus is Lord, you are denying the plain truth that is available for anyone to examine. It has been said there are none so blind as those who will not see, and truly God's Word gives evidence of its authenticity and its authority. 
So any church leader, and for that matter, anyone who calls himself a Christian and who does not believe that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God, is nothing but a heretic. Unfortunately, many churches nationwide are propagating this false doctrine. Tomorrow we'll continue our look at providing effective ministry despite the false teaching that is so rampant. For a copy of this message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 1TM9, entitled Effective Ministry in the Last Days. Join us tomorrow as we return to 1 Timothy and continue our look at providing effective ministry as we search the scriptures. <music>